Payloads verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Welcome to Trek It Out with Priority One, and now your hosts. Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Trek It Out. We are here with a very special guest. His Emmy Award-winning work has spanned many, many famous TV shows and movies, including Dallas, The Brady Bunch, Mission Impossible, Fantasy Island, The Immortal, Max Headroom, Police Story, Midnight Caller, Power, Destination Interspace, Cross Creek, One Potato, Two Potato, and The Odd Couple. In 1998, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award. Here with us is Douglas Grindstaff, the sound editor and designer for Star Trek, the original television series. Welcome to Priority One, and thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm glad to be here. It's great. So to start with, we'd love to hear about you and get to know you. Well, let me tell you, I came back from Korea. I was in combat and I came back and my brother was working for Howard Hughes and he owned RKO Studios. So he asked me if I wanted to go work over there. And I didn't know, but I went over for an interview and uh, I probably had the job before I went for the interview, but what did I know? I didn't know anything about that stuff. And I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. When I was probably about eight years old, my uncle and my brother Charles bought me a radio sound thing for Christmas. And you could make all these sounds with it and what have you. And that was the first time I had really knew anything about sounds. And then this same brother had me go to RKO and for the interview, eh, I got the job and I worked a year as an apprentice at RKO Studios. And then I moved up to an assistant editor after a year. You were supposed to be an apprentice three years, but they moved me up after one year. And uh, then I started working as an assistant film editor to the editor on different shows, feature films. Then the editor I worked with he, nobody touched his dialogue track. You did all the work on the dialogue track. You built units for it and various things. And then the sound editor would come in and finish it all off. Now, in those days, we didn't have Foley artists. We didn't have dialogue editor. We didn't have different people doing different things. We just did it all. And so I had a good background in this. And then it, it just kind of slipped in. You know, I uh, was working on a show with Bob Mitchum uh, called Thunder Road. And the sound editor was drunk and didn't do any work. And so film editor Harry Marker walked in the room and he says, Doug, I'll do the dialogue tracks and you're going to have to cut the sound effects. And that was really the first sound I had done on a show. And uh, so I got some sounds from uh, Universal Studio and I augmented the hot car that they had in the thing. 
he was running liquor and stuff. The show was shot back in South Carolina, and we did the show. And uh, that's how I guess I got started in it. Then uh, on uh, One Potato, Two Potato, I did all of the assisting on the show and then did all of the sound effects on the show, and then I cut some of the picture. And that got nominated for an award. The uh, actress in it received an award in uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, Roderick and Bill Heath, Bill Heath was head of the department at Desi Lou, and he asked me to come over and help him because they were doing this show and it was all in color and stuff, and they didn't know what they were doing. Kind of came out on the the optical, what we called optical effects. That would have been all of your the, the exterior shots with the Enterprise, with the stars and all that stuff. I used to stay, stay with uh, the Anderson brothers till about two or three o'clock in the morning doing that stuff. Then uh, he found out about Ruddenberry, then found out that I was nominated for a sound award. He didn't know I knew anything about sound. And he asked me to give the guys some advice. They were kind of messed up up above. And uh, we got through the original pilot. And then uh, the second pilot, I went up and three of us did the second pilot. And then things started, Star Trek started. And uh, I went up there and uh, started working with the sound crew. I wanted to ask a little bit about that first conversation you had with, with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, you know, when he approached you, and he, did he tell you about the show, and, and what was your reaction? Was it, ah, some space show, that's never going to go anywhere. What, what, was your, what was your take on it? Yeah, it was a job, and uh, uh, I really, I spent my whole career, I mean, I worked all the time, and that's pretty hard to do in Hollywood and stay as steady steady, you know, working from one show to the other and everything, and uh, I sort of ended up doing that. So it didn't, uh, it didn't even, it didn't even affect me. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea what Star Trek would turn out to be, that it would still be running it today on the television. I, I, I would have said no way, but I enjoyed it. It was uh, Roddenberry was very easy to work with. He was uh, very involved. I came in one morning on the show, and he had the secretary gave me 11 page of notes that he had he had dictated to her on one episode of Star Trek. Well, that's kind of unusual, but that wasn't unusual for Gene Roddenberry. He uh, was uh, hands-on with the sound as he was with every other aspect of the show. And uh, I liked him. He liked me. We got along, which helped me with the other producers and stuff because they knew I had Roddenberry's ear, so they weren't going to mess with something that I did. So it was, it was, it was fun. It, it was very creative. Uh, we didn't have synthesizers in those days. I brought in one person, Jack Cookerly, and he had an organ that was rigged up to do electronic sound effects. And I had him for one day, that's all the studio would pay for. <laughs> he made me a bunch of bleeps and stuff and sounds which I used in the medical room and stuff. And 
if you look at the, when they were sitting, uh, looking at the screen and on the bridge, there was a little light underneath there where he made the sound for that. And then I would tweak them and edit them to fit so that uh, they would work. Oh, and one thing, the alarms and various things, the lights flashing and stuff, every time the editors would cut the picture, that would throw the rhythm off. So you had a heck of a job because we had to hand cut. And what you would do is you would kind of graduate it to these cuts and then graduate it back up so that it wouldn't jump the sound, if you understand what I'm saying. And uh, when you made sound effects in those days, it was on mag. We didn't have digital. And uh, you'd use a razor blade or sandpaper or steel wool or something. And you'd flip the sound over. You'd run it backwards. You did everything you could think of doing to turn around and manufacture something. I used the orchestras a lot. The end of an of an orchestra session, I would uh, go on the stage and maybe hold over the electric guitarist and the drummer and some some of the instrumental people, and uh, I'd get them to make me certain things, and then I would play with them, speed them up, slow them down. When I say speed them up, maybe you'd speed them up, make a, a loop out of it. And then you would turn around and speed that up again, and you'd, you'd have a whole sound come from out of that sound. That would work. And back backgrounds were a big problem because you'd go to different planets, and the different planets all had to have a different background, so that was a oh, problem. One background I, I really liked was we had sort of a foggy background on this planet, and... Uh, I went in and I got the orchestra tuning up and I recorded that and then I played with that, slowing it down, speeding it up, flipping it over, doing all sorts of stuff to it till I came out with a nice sound. So that's kind of the way you had to do things. You didn't have to synthesize it. They kept telling me they were coming, but they never did. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, they, they would tell time, oh, it's just right here, we've got this thing, and I'd go in and play with it, and it was nothing, you know. That was how we had to do. Now, you got to remember, we would get the show, and I had to, we had to turn it out in one week. The first season, it was so messed up, oh, I quit at one point. <laughs> and if you'll notice, the first few episodes, I don't have a screen credit. And I was tired of doing all the work. And what the studios did was they, the head of the department, they would give him the credit on every show that the studio did. So, Give who the credit? Give Who was it that they gave the credit to? Uh, the very first, they gave the credit to the department head. Oh, oh, oh. So that's, yeah, that's why the... you'll see a lot of shows with one person's name on it for all these different shows. I, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit. Uh, what I was going to ask is, how, how'd you get, how'd, how'd they reel you back in? What happened was, I handed in my two weeks notice, right? Nobody said anything. I didn't hear anything for a week. Then a week later, I get a call from the senior vice president of Desilu to come up to his office. I go up to his office, and I'm in there talking with him, and I'm telling him all the problems and everything. And we didn't have a parking spot. 
<laughs> you had to work late at night and they wouldn't let us on the lot. I That's just awesome. got mad at everything. <laughs> so all of a sudden the door opens and it's Jane Roddenberry. And he says, I don't want, care what you have to do. I want Doug Grimestaff here. That is amazing. So, you know, that's the kind of guy he was. He had just found out about it, I guess, and I wasn't going to bother him. He was busy <laughs> producing, know, writing the show and rewriting it. Writers would do a show, and he would turn around and rewrite it and lock his door and slip the pages under the door. <laughs> he, he was great. So we worked things out, and uh, Herb Solo, the vice president, he promised me he would do certain things, and I've got to say, he was a man of his word. He did everything he promised he would do. And I came back upstairs when we finished that first season. Now, we had about eight ed editors doing it. The second season, now they kept me on after that, for, through the hiatus. I just stayed on steady. But the second season, when we started the series, I did it with three guys and myself. And that was it. Because by then I had the show organized and I could do things my way. And uh, I did Mission Impossible that same way. Bruce Geller, who is the creator of Mission Impossible and producer, he didn't think I could do it, but we did it. So, you know, if things are organized, you can do certain things. And that's that to me is one of the biggest things is you've got to be organized. I'd like to know what shows or activities interested you. Uh, what inspired your dreams? What inspired my dreams? To keep working. <laughs> no, you, you know, hey, you have to earn a living in this day, and it was a living. It was hard work. I would I would get in to work at oh seven o'clock in the morning, and I wouldn't get out till two o'clock. You know, the next morning. Those are long days. And you do that seven days a week. But you have certain things. I'll tell you some funny stuff, okay? We used to, on the weekends, we would take the golf carts that you drive around the lot, and we would race them. We would race the uh, studio guards and stuff. <laughs> Did you ever race uh, Gene Roddenberry? No. I'll tell you one thing. With Roddenberry, one time he came up on a motorcycle, and he'd been out rock cutting. And he tells them at the gate that he's Gene Roddenberry, and they said, yeah, sure. They wouldn't believe him, so I had to go down to the gate and get him in. <laughs> I don't think anyone else has ever mentioned him, that he used to go do that. I'm sorry, I was going to say, what was it that, he, that he, was, he came in on his motorcycle after doing what? He was out rock hunting, so I got him in on the lot. That was kind of funny. And the, oh, there were two other guys who worked on the show that were just... Great. Bob Justman, one of the producers, the associate producers, and Eddie Milkus. They're both passed away now, but I have to mention them. They were just super. And Bob Justman liked to play games with you. I mean, he was, he was funny. And we did one show, and I think the character it was called The Gorn. And this great big guy that played the part of The Gorn, I got him on the stage and had him make me all these sounds for the Gorn, because he was terrific. His voice fit his physique, and he uh, made all these things. Well, I edited him out to use the sounds I wanted for the Gorn, 
but what I had left over sounded like a guy throwing up. <laughs> so I made a loop out of this. You know what? You know what a loop is? Yeah. Thirty-five millimeter film with the sprocket hose and all, and I made a loop of the throwing up. And every time Bob Justman would drive up and park his car, which was right outside my window, I would put this loop on the movie movieola. Now movieola is what we had to use with the sound and the picture. Anyway, I would play this loop over and over, guys throwing up. Finally, I got a memo from Bob that it wasn't funny anymore. <laughs> I got to him, in other words. It was funny. But... Can you can you recall what your most difficult sound effect was to make? The trebles were a little something to do because trebles, uh, they had to... Filled it. it was a few of them, and they got more of them, and then they got more of them, and they finally filled the whole damn ship. And but now there's an example of the triples. I'd go down to Gene Roddenberry's office. They'd show me what a triple looked like, and Gene would make a comment of some sound that we needed, and I would go back up and play, making some stuff and everything, and it, it all worked. The uh, triples. They would rear up and would be mad at you, so I used a screech owl for that. And then I used, you know, how you take a balloon and you squeak it. I, I did that, and then I got some rats from uh, the library, and I treated those and played with it. And, uh, I th yeah, and I got some, some doves. When it was happy, I, used a, I took a dove sound, and I would slow them up, speed them up, and I'd take a razor blade on the mag film that we were using, and I would scrape it and shave it off. And then I kind of made this variety, and I, I used those for when it was happy and kind of relaxed and not doing anything. And then as it got busier, I added these other sound effects and all, and we filled the ship with them, and they were happy. Um, there, was a, there was a show that was a pilot, Assignment Earth, with Robert Lamson, and that show had a computer in it, and I must have made three or four sets of computers. Gene liked one, and I told him, you're crazy, it's going to drive you nuts. I like this one. Night, he said, Doug, I like this one, it's beautiful what you did. Because I'd show him ahead of time before we went on the stage to mix it all. Get on the stage, he comes over to me. And he says, Doug, you were right. He said, this thing's starting to drive me crazy. Can we fix it? I said, sure. And I walk up to the mixers and I said, close these pots, open these up. And I had it all built my way. And because I knew it wasn't what he was asking for wouldn't be right. He might have known writing, but I knew sound. And that's the way I played it. And so it worked fine. Now, I did, I will tell you one trick. A lot of things, one show we had, I can't remember the name of it, but one show we had, we had some uh, this rock from the, it was pulsing. That was a kiss. I, I made probably a hundred kisses, and I turned around and played with them again, speeding them up, slowing them down, everything, until I got several that pulsated, and they would pulsate right with that rock. Now you'd get on the stage and they'd ask you what you did for it. And I never would tell them because if they heard it, then they could say, oh yeah, I recognize that now. No. So I never told them what, what I did for the sound effects. 
So that was one of the tricks. You had to be very disciplined and not tell them. I didn't even tell Roddenberry. If he asked me, I'd say, I don't know, I just forgot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That is fantastic to know. You have to do all that kind of stuff. Now, you guys today have more tools than I ever thought of having, you know, to use to make stuff. Because I did a couple of other little shows where I had to, because I was a union member stuff, I would have to go off the lot and go to somebody's house and use a synthesizer to make sound effects for what I was going to use at the studio. So that's what you had to do. Not that There wasn't that many non-union around at that time. But it's worked out good for me. I mean, I get a nice pension from the union now. <laughs> were, there, uh, were there any beginner mistakes that you made early on that got you into trouble or were just unexpected doorways to opportunities? That got me into trouble? <laughs> oh, let me think. Uh, I don't know of any sounds that got me into trouble. I was going to tell you, when we used to race the uh, uh, golf carts around the lot, one of, one of the guys got a hold of one of the golf carts, and it was Lucille Balls. Now, she owned the studio that we produced Star Trek on. It was later sold to Paramount. But anyway, someone got her electric cart and ran the battery down and then left it at the gate as they went out and didn't put it back where it was supposed to be. And she came in and she sees this thing. She's looking for her cart. She finds it. And right away, she says, I know who did it. It's Doug Grindstaff. <laughs> so that's kind of the reputation I had. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, well, I got chewed out by Lucille Ball. But as I went in the door, it happened to be a weekend. I wasn't there on that Sunday that it happened. And I said, are they going to pay me? <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of things that would happen. But that was to leave steam off. You know, all the guys, you know, I said, all right, I'm going to tell a story. One time there was in Hollywood, there was this place where they had the girls, let's put it this way, the girls were all skimpily dressed. And it was a great eating spot. It really was. They had great food. So I take the crew and we go over to it. It was called the phone booth. And we go to it and we're there for, I don't know, three, four hours. And we come back and I get a call and it's Jean Roddenberry's secretary. She says, where have you been? Jean's been looking for you. And... I go down to his office and I go in. He says, Doc, we've been looking all over for you. He says, where, where were you? And I told him, I said, I went to the phone booth. I took all the crew. He said, you know, that's what I like about you. You knew they needed a break. <laughs> that was, that'll tell you a little insight in this Roddenberry. He was, he was very cool. He didn't, he wasn't mad. He was happy I did it. He knew they all had been working hours on end and uh, they needed a break i've got a question since you mentioned the crew i've got a question um it, you know, and this happens in theater a lot where sometimes the actors don't really mingle with the stage crew or anything of that nature was that the case on on the star trek set or did you guys mingle with the cast as well it depended on the show and the cat the crew yeah, I used to go on the stage a lot, so I used to know a lot of the 
members and the stars. We we did all the dialogue replacement and stuff. I would have to go on the stage and and uh, direct the uh, actors in doing all that. So in that respect, what we didn't do that much on Star Trek was basically shot very well and on the stages and. Uh, when they did go outside, they seemed to get pretty good sound, so we didn't have to redo too much of it. But uh, you'd do that, and then sometimes for performances, you'd redo the actors. And I used to do all that myself, and then footsteps. I can remember going on Hollywood Boulevard to a shoe store, buying a pair of high heels to do Lucille Ball's footsteps. So you can imagine what they felt when I walked in and asked for a pair of high heels. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> but you get involved in everything. And if you're going to be a supervisor of the show, you've got to be involved in all of it. You should be. Even when I had Foley people doing a show, I used to go down on the Foley stage to see what they were doing and make sure everything was fine. I know there was a, there was a book written that Shatner, in the middle of it, he mentions my name. And he says, I don't know what he did. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> wow, yeah. Eh. You know, hey, he's had a great career. Now, was it hard creating or adjusting to the new sound technology over the years? No, not really. Uh, technology changed. When I first started in the business, it was optical sound, where they'd take a picture of it and put it on the, the clear track, and you'd see the wavy lines you know, where they would photograph the sound, and then you had on your moviola, you had a little light that hit that, and that created the sound, and that's what you would hear. Now with that, when I'd go to fade out or do something, I could take a horse track, for instance. If the horse is going one speed, I could change the speed of the horse by taking uh, ink with a little brush that we had called blooping ink, and we would I could just paint the uh, track to a little bit, and then I'd wait a little bit, then I'd do another one, and wait a little bit, and do another one, and we'd change the whole gait that the horse was going at. A gunshot with that, you, you could see the gunshot, but with magnetic film, you couldn't see it. So you'd have to run the magnetic track and mark the gunshots, and then you'd pull them off and cut them. Wow, that's not at all what we work with today. Uh, and. I, I can just imagine what that would have been like, and I would love to try that, actually, uh, without, you know, without going on the internet and quickly looking it up. I think for most people, they would have a hard time trying to imagine that process of, of painting sound. You know, how do you turn a photo into sound? Um, you know, for people who work in sound, I, yes. they, can, they can imagine that, um, but I don't know anyone who has worked with that except for you. Um, that's... Mostly just done by computers now. Um, taking a picture or painting sound, um, it's almost something like I would love to see computers come up with some type of software that replicates that to some degree. That is sort of a hands-on creative approach with the software to be able to get some of that experience that you went through. I, w I went from optical to magnetic to digital. So I've seen it gradually progress. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, that's why I say you guys have all these nice equipment and stuff. I, I kind of want to jump to um, Michael Henry's. 
question, uh, if that's okay. The head of the sound department at Cryptic. Original Star Trek sound effects with, well, I'll tell you. Some of the sounds you heard in that in Star Trek were from uh, War of the Worlds. Now, you couldn't take a sound from War of the Worlds and just drop it in Star Trek. Uh, so you had to play with it. You had to do certain things to it to kind of change it a little bit. The photon torpedo, I think that's where it came from. I can't remember, but I think I got the original sound from that. And it was in the library and from War of the Worlds. And uh, then we did some little tweaking to it and everything. And uh, that was the photon torpedo. Well, when they were transporting onto a planet or coming back onto the ship, that was basically done by adding generators with music. And then again, you'd take a razor blade and scrape the sound on the magnetic so that it would fit the pictorial effect that they had. And I had to make several of them because the pictorial thing of them coming on a planet or coming back onto the ship weren't always the same length. So you'd try and make several of them to the picture so and scrape up the sound off so that it would fit perfect. And even then sometimes what we would do is we'd be editing the sound to maybe a black and white picture and then they'd put the color in and the color would be different. So when you see the show it's slightly off. That's because we did it to a black and white and it was perfect and the color came in and it was a little different. So that explains why that would be off. Uh, I don't know, the warp, the warp factor was an interesting one. Oh. We, we had a warp factor sound we made up and then all of a sudden they got warp factor one, warp factor two, warp factor three, <laughs> four. So we had to to do all those work factors. They came up an elevator, okay? They do the elevator on it with this little hum, right? No problem. Then they would have it go up and turn a corner. Now, how are you going to pick the thumb up and turn the corner? And we'd have to do that kind of thing. <laughs> now, Roddenberry had a couple of things he told me. He wanted me to paint it like it was a big picture. He wanted sounds with everything. He wanted it painted that way. He wanted it to be like a gigantic boat. That's why you had the bosun's whistle in there. And also, when you look at a Star Trek, in those days they did not have precision to make the lights stay in synchronization. You get me? If you just looked at those lights flashing, they wouldn't stay in rhythm. They just didn't do it. So what you had to do was we'd have to look at it and edit it. We'd have to take a frame out, maybe add some to keep it hitting the lights. Now that's because they had cheap, <laughs> they were too cheap to turn around and buy a decent uh, thing to turn around and keep all that stuff together. And then every time the editor would cut it, it would throw it out. So what you had to do was you had to edit the things so that they would, uh, not just bounce all of a sudden, so it would be more of a smooth transition and come back in. Now, I, I had one fellow, Jack Cookerly, 
we brought him to the stage, I think I mentioned that before, and Marshall's shaking her head. But he made these sound effects and stuff for me. Like, if you were sitting at the bridge, you'll see a light underneath the screen. Well, they had it going three ways. They had it going fast, medium, and real slow. And he made me some bleeps for that. And then I had to edit them so they would fit the screen and be just perfect. And then, then the film editors would mess it all up. So then you'd have to do a lot of editing to do that. And there would always be in a show one reel that was really tough to do. So what we did was they had crammed from what we normally used to use when I first went in. An hour show would be broke down into six reels. They crammed it into five reels. So what I would do is take two of the editors would get two reels apiece, and then the toughest reel would go to the third editor to do. And then when I had spare time, I would come up and help whoever needed some help. And that's how we did the series, basically. And, uh, oh, I went to one convention. Gene Roddenberry got me to go to one convention, and I sat on a panel with the guy who uh, created the Enterprise and the different ones, Anderson Brothers. And we sat up there, and I'm telling you, there were 5,000 people in the audience, and I swear, every one of them knew more about Star Trek than I did. So I never went to any of the others. Gene could, Roddenberry could never convince me to go to another. And then when they started to do the feature, I was asked by Roddenberry to come over and do the feature, the first feature. And I went over, and I talked to Gene. I met the director. And I said, you're going to have to talk to Gene and convincing that I'm not going to do this. He says, why is that? I said, because I'm running a department over here, and I've got maybe 10 television shows, and I'm not going to quit that job to come over and do this feature. And that's why I didn't do it. And plus, I sort of had it with Star Trek. I'd been on it for five years of my life, so that was enough. Yeah. I can understand that. It would be nice to have you at the conventions nowadays, though. There's so many new... Uh, New Trekkies, new blood that uh, have not heard any any of this, and it's just it's gold. It's awesome. Yeah. I I do want to ask the company that we work with to do these interviews. Um, they have gotten a lot of the library from the original series, a lot of the sound libraries, but they they only have sixty nine sounds from the original series, and they say that uh, Paramount's telling them that that all the others have been quote unquote lost to history. Uh, is it true that you know there, a lot of these sounds are, are are gone? I guess I when I left the series, I bundled up the whole Star Trek library and it was sealed, and it was taken over to Paramount and put in the basement. And the head of this department over there, I think he passed, he passed away this last year. Hager, he was a music editor, and I didn't think much of him, but he was died. But I don't know what they did. They must have let all the editors go in there that wanted to and do whatever. I guess that's what happened to it. I don't know. Hmm. I should have transferred the whole thing, I guess, and brought it home, but I didn't. I never did that kind of stuff. So that's, I guess that's what happened to it. I don't know. We really know. But when I left, it was bundled up. It was set. And everything was there. In fact, between the first season and the second season, myself and an assistant editor 
we uh, cleaned up and fixed the whole library and put everything together. That's why we could do it with three editors and myself. I created all the sound effects and then the three editors did it. And that that's kind of how it went. Well, we've got questions from, um, from Drew Rydberg. He's actually from the sound department as well, from Cryptic. Um, and he wants to know what's your favorite Star Trek sound effect that you created, if you have one. Well, I don't know. Uh, my favorite show was the one I told you about, the Assignment Earth. That was actually a pilot for a new series that Roddenberry was going to try and sell. But it was one episode of, the, of Star Trek. And that one, believe it or not, had the most sound effects of any show I think we ever did. Because you were on the ship, you had everything that went going on on the ship, and then you came down to Earth, and you had everything there, and you had the electronic stuff going there, the computers and various things. And cats. Cats? I had, I had my thing with cats. We had one show with a big black cat in it, and I wanted that cat hissing. And now I got the trainer to bring a dog in, and this is the biggest black cat I have ever seen in my life. And he's holding this black cat. And we bring the dog up to the black cat. And boy, that cat. He put his claws right into the guy's boots and into his flesh. And then he had to, we had to back off and he started petting it. And it eased out, pulled his claws out. Uh, that was making some sound effects. And then on this assignment earth, we had a cat. And at the end of the show, the cat turns into a girl. And uh, Gene Roddenberry wanted the cat to talk like he was talking. And so I brought in, I tried everything, and it wouldn't work. I finally brought in a person who did cat sounds. And they came in, she came in, and she did the cat. And it worked fine. I, uh, I really had no favorite thing that I did, but... We just kept doing them. They kept coming. <laughs> I just kept doing Hey, I turned down some other features, Adrian. You wouldn't believe. Which ones have you turned down? Well, Rocky, the first Rocky. How's that grab you? Ooh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with the producer on the show that he did just before that Rocky, and they wanted me to come over and do it, and I said no. And again, I was going to be in charge of the department at Columbia Studios, and I stayed there. I had worked on some other science fiction, just individual feature films or something, and various stuff. And gosh, I must have worked on about 80 or 90 films. A lot of them I would just come in to do one thing on the show. One show, uh, Gumball Rally. The director of the Gumball Rally was a stunt driver. And uh, he didn't like this car thing. Up, it was going up the L.A. River. I think it was a Ferrari and some other car. I can't remember. And uh, he didn't like what they did. Somebody recommended me, and I came in and edited that section through there, the chase. And he loved it. So how about that? That was my reward. And the editors who did it, they used to work for me after that. So it, that's the way it worked in Hollywood. Like I say, I just kept working. And so I had a whole career. I was surprised that NBC quit doing the show after three seasons. I really was. And I'm sure they're kicking themselves now because 
they had gone about five or seven years, they could have made much more money than they're making. Yeah, I think uh, everybody wanted that to have continued. Yeah, if, because we were just getting into the electronic age. You were just starting to get the... When I saw Star Wars, I flipped. That's another reason why I didn't do the Star Trek. I thought they had blown up. Because when I saw Star Trek, I was just enamored with it. It was great. There is a book out called The Sounds of Star Wars. And it's dedicated to three people, and I'm one of them. Oh, great. Awesome. At my age, that was a real thing. The other guy did, uh, at Warner Brothers, he did Looney Tunes. And then the other fellow was from RKO Studios that I worked with. So, and the three of us were, was dedicated to. That was kind of nice. We had um, we had Ralph Miller on the show. Uh, I think it was episode eighty, and uh, he mentioned um, that if it weren't for you, there would be no Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph is a great guy. He's very talented. I like him very much, and uh, yeah, he does good work. Nice guy to work with. He's kept me in the loop when they'll make a Star Trek with all these amateur actors and everything, he he would always send me a copy of it. He's been a very good friend. Now, um, did I ever tell you the first job he ever had in the motion picture business? I don't think so. It was for my uncle. Before television, they used to have something called uh, Castle Films. In Castle Films, people with a little bit more money and everything they would have a 16 millimeter projector and everything in their house and they would rent or buy these castle films and they would run them in their home. And my uncle was vice president of the West Coast the Castle Films and he asked me if I wanted to come up with Christmas time and give me a couple of weeks work to go into a, a camera department at one of the uh, major uh, Macy's like Macy's, okay? They'd have a camera store in there, and I would go in, set up a screen, set up the projection machine, and run these films. And I worked for two weeks, and I think they paid me 45 bucks a week. I got 90 bucks, which was the most they could pay me. And that was my first job, actually, in the motion picture industry. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so that was it, and then... Oh, other jobs I had, I worked in a grain mill as a sweeper. And uh, then I came, when I came back to the Army, before I went to work at the studio, that's right, I worked on the docks of the same grain mill. I went by, saw the guy, and he put me to work on it. Take 100-pound sacks of flour. You get 10 of them on hand truck. That's 1,000 pounds. You have to wheel it around and load it. I have to. I was the smallest guy on this thing, but so I've done a few things like that. I met John Wayne. You want to hear that? Oh yeah, you met John Wayne. Nice. Yeah, I worked on a couple of movies with that Howard Hughes did. But all of a sudden the door opens. I'm an apprentice, and I have this dolly full of film. I've got to take it up to a film room, and he opens the door for me. And I look up, and it's John Wayne. He's dressed in sport coat and slacks and everything. 
we're talking, walking up the street, and I get there, and I go to turn to put the film in this dumbwaiter. And he says, do you need some help up there? And I said, no, I got a dumbwaiter. I just put it on it and said to me, laugh. Tell your brother hello when you see him. And that was a, that was my, my life first meeting John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. Then my brother passed away in October 55. My brother passed away. He was only 37 years old age. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, that was a loss because, you know, he's how I got in the studios and stuff. And uh, from then on, I was on my own. So I had to make my own decisions and what have you. And I just, I am like I say, and when I got into sound, I just kept going. How long did you serve in the Army for? About three years. I was in the occupation forces in Japan. And then I went, when Korea broke out, we went over to Korea. And I was in, up in North Korea fighting. So I was in combat. I was in the infantry. I was a lowly sergeant of an infantry outfit. Our other host, James, uh, also served, and uh, I know I speak for him uh, and many, if not all, of our listeners when I when I say thank you for your service. Well, thank you. It was tough. I think it was 30 below zero my first night in combat. That'll tell you how it was. And then, of course, the wind would blow. I don't know what it was with the wind factor. I'm sure it dropped lower than that. And, uh, yeah. Did any of your experiences from uh, being in the Army help you with getting into sound or uh, developing any uh, any of the new sound effects that you came up with? And Oh, not, not really. I never thought about it. This is the first time I'm thinking about it. I, I don't think so. Uh, I've often wondered how it would have been to have... I worked on a show one time. They were bombing Pearl Harbor and doing all that stuff. And then we built that. But that's the only show I ever worked on without that. I don't like to look at too many crime shows these days or not, especially in the evening, because I had some of the flashbacks of the death come back to me. So I have to avoid looking at, I, I just look at comedy or drama, drama, dramatic shows in the evening, that's about it. If I'm going to look at the other, I look at it during the day. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. So what are you guys up to now? Us guys, <laughs> we're we're getting good people on our show like you, <laughs> and and supporting the Star Trek uh, the Star Trek genre and legacy. You know who would lo- you know who I bet would love to speak with you, sir, is uh, Rod Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's son. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm sure he would love to sit down and talk with you. There's been talk about getting him onto a couple podcast shows, and uh, maybe we can combine forces because I'm sure he'd be interested in it. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, because Gene uh, was quite a guy. He uh, worked for the L.A. Police Department before, and he was writing for all the top shows in Hollywood, and he finally just had to make a choice, and he made a choice just to continue his writing career and quit his job with the police department. But that's what he did before. I don't know if you guys do that or not. And he was a pilot as well. He was a fighter pilot, wasn't he? He was. He was a pilot. He was a pilot, and then he worked for the police department. He did a lot, and he wrote a lot of stuff about drugs. I know that. That's about all I know from that. The other guys uh, on the show, uh, Bob Justman, and they've all passed away, and of course Gene did. I ran into Gene Roddenberry in Santa Monica when your mom 
when me and your grandmother and I were living in Santa Monica, and we're, I was in a drugstore, and all of a sudden there's Roddenberry, and we we must have talked for 30 minutes. They finally came in and I had to get him at a car waiting outside for him. But we had a nice chat. And then when he passed away, I didn't go to the funeral because I knew it would be full of everybody in there. And I just, I didn't want to. I had seen him, but uh, I miss him. He was a good guy. Yeah, I did get, he did ask me to work on that first show. And I turned it down. Maybe I shouldn't have, I don't know. Yeah. That's such a great experience you have. It, it's just wonderful. Yeah. There's the thing that people like to know, which is since you've worked on the set with the cast, uh, was there anything that you saw or heard that was, was funny or interesting that the cast did? Uh, one bit you mentioned about um, Leonard Nimoy having worked as a taxi driver. Well, he had worked with, as a taxi driver before. He had worked as an actor off and on, and he'd worked with... Roddenberry on some stuff that Roddenberry did at MGM Studios, and I know he, he told me that he had worked with the stock taxi driver. I will tell you, my son Chuck, now Chuck today is the president and CEO of a company for Siemens, and they just sent a rocket up to the uh, space shuttle. The first time that uh, someone's done it besides the government, and that they used Chuck's software to do that. He won a scientific award. He created some uh, digital editing equipment for sound and everything. For him. Anyway, I brought Chuck in when he was a kid in Star Trek and showed him everything, and he met different ones and stuff. And when we were coming back up, Leonard Nimoy's dressing room was right below my editing room. So I ducked in there to see if Leonard was there, and Leonard was there. And he had a sport coat on, he was all dressed, but he still had his ears on and makeup. So Chuck looked at Leonard. He couldn't believe it because the guy looked for real, you know, like this is a guy from space. <laughs> and Leonard got a big kick out of that. Like, that was funny. <laughs> while we were doing this show uh, one time. You gotta remember, Desi Lu was not used to doing big time motion pictures. They were a little TV outfit. Now you've got Star Trek, but it's, it's a classy show. So I'd have to do things. So one time I had a two and a half ton truck unload a load of dirt on one of the sound stages at Desi Lu. And the head of my department walks through, and here I've got all this dirt. We're making sound effects, you know. He just he about blew up. <laughs> <laughs> one time on the first pilot, there was one effect, visual effect, and this was the hardest one we ever had. We had the character Vina. Vina was standing on the ledge of this rock, this edge of this thing, and Jean wanted her to blow away like the wind had just blown her away. Okay, this will give you an example of how to make it. They start working on it and work to make it come back on and on and on. And poor Howard, he'd come in with his effects. 
and we'd look at them and Gene would say, no, that's not what I want. I want this person just blown off. So that went on forever. One time he came in with this thing and we're looking at it. Gene and I look at each other and we're so tired we just both broke up laughing. <laughs> they just couldn't get it. Eventually they got close to it, I think. And that's what went in the show. But that that stuff would happen all the time. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. We had every place that could do optical work, like put stuff together for it picture wise. All the houses in Hollywood were tied up during Star Trek. And this was just a TV show. So that'll tell you what was going on in those days. That's amazing. That's a big project. Yes, it was. Very big television project for its time. It was, a, it was an interesting career in life. I mean, you know, I'm sorry I had to retire at the age of 60, but that's the way it was after seven bypasses. Mm. Marcia said, you got to quit. So some people can make it forever and some can't. What was one of the last productions that you worked on? Well, the last television thing would be Max Headroom. Max Headroom, I guess. Cool. That's a great one. <laughs> that was an English show, and they brought it over here, and we, we did it over here. So they already had that way they wanted to do it. We just copied what they did. But the uh, actors were great, and it was a good show. It was interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, I would, that one, they would call me, the studio would call me, and I'd have to get out of bed at midnight and go over to the studio and kick the producer off the stage. <laughs> you know, you had people, the crew had to work on something coming in at 6 o'clock or 7 or 8, rather that next morning, and this guy wanted to work all night. So I'd show up and he'd leave. He'd offer me a warm beer like the English do because he was English. <laughs> the last time I saw him, Adrian, he was coming, driving his little Porsche out of Warner Brothers studio and he was waving at me and I gave him the finger and that was it. <laughs> uh. So that's about it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure I'll think of other stuff when you leave because that's the way I usually am. Thank you guys very much. It was a great interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. It's an honor to have you here as our guest, and we in the community are very, very grateful for everything you've done to serve our country, in addition to your work on our most beloved show, Star Trek, and you're an inspiration to me and many others. Uh, I just want to say thank you again, and we look forward to getting you on the show again sometime, or you know, throw us any other stories you think of. I will, I promise. And I want you to know you're the cutest granddaughter I got. <laughs> oh, isn't that? F <laughs> yeah, and with that, I'll say goodbye. We'll keep in touch. Okay. Thank you, you so very much. It's been an honor. Thank you very much, too. Bye-bye.
Transfer complete.